0: You're listening to Changemaker. Ideas on social impact. Lessons on life and business. Stories from people making a difference. I'm Jackie Biederman.
1: (laughs) My name's Toby. I'm uh, I'm German, and I'm also Muslim. That's the response I always get. (laughs) it doesn't even end there. I'm German, I'm Muslim, and I grew up in Syria, South Africa, and Pakistan. Yeah, so if you have trouble remembering, I'm basically all the bad guys from all the Die Hard movies. (laughs) (laughs) Squeezed into one person. I I did live in Syria uh, for four years, but, um, you know, it's kind of big in the news right now, and I try to give people a different image, because I was living there before the war, when it was still just a regular, peaceful... Oppressive dictatorship. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: and I knew, like, I was a kid, but I realized there was censorship because there was like certain movies you couldn't watch, couldn't get any Coca-Cola, so I was drinking Shmoka Shmola. <laughs> no Nutella, which is crazy as a kid, you know? No Nutella. And some other stuff like no free speech or human rights. <laughs> no Nutella, come on.
0: Toby Arslan is a stand-up comic in Berlin. He recently quit his day job to take this on full time. I reached out to Toby for two reasons. The first is I found that he does shows to support refugees in Berlin. Now he made it clear to me that he's not an activist and he does a very small part. But I still think this is pretty cool. The second reason that I reached out is because I think that we can learn a lot from comedians. Like entrepreneurs, comedians are constantly coming up with new ideas.
1: By the way, I don't know, are you if are you die hard fan, Jackie?
0: You know, I've only watched the first one like years and years ago. I remember Bruce Willis had like a bloody foot or something. <laughs> That's like <laughs> about all. Yeah. Are you a big die hard fan then?
1: I used to be, but I do this joke to die-hard fans. I don't know if it's going to work via Skype interview, but uh, do you know that in Die-Hard 5, uh, Bruce Willis was dead inside the entire time? <laughs> That's a sixth sense. Can you edit that to make it sound funny? Yes, yes. Like add some add some like sitcom laughs or something in the <laughs> yes. background, maybe?
0: I'll add a laugh track in there.
1: That would be amazing, yeah.
0: <laughs> some of these ideas make it to the stage where people might laugh or not. Ideas are pretty easy to come by. I bet you've got a few of them right now. Maybe you've got an idea to start a social venture or you're thinking about a new direction. It's fun to come up with new ideas. Executing them is the risky part. You could fail, which is what prevents a lot of us from starting something in the first place. But I think that this is the bigger risk. Your idea could help a lot of people And without trying it out, it never will. Today's show is for the risk averse, those of us who are hesitant to take action. We're gonna talk about moving through fear and find ways to make an idea safe to try. Toby needs to be funny because getting people to laugh is what pays the bills. So there's a lot at stake with his ideas. But when he was just starting out, he had some protection. Toby was working at an ad agency as a copywriter, where he had to come up with new ideas.
1: And uh, what I had to do is, that was completely nerve-wracking to someone who'd just been studying at university. They'd tell me like, oh, whatever, this and this uh, newspaper wants to sell this and this uh, ad space, come up with something funny to sell that, right? Mm. And Suddenly, you have to come up with like, an idea that you came up with and presented to your 55-year-old judging German bosses, <laughs> uh, and you're like, like, your hands are trembling when you're presenting the papers, and they're just completely unimpressed with all these ideas you're presenting. And uh, and what it helped me realize was, first of all, that the ideas don't matter as much, but executions do. So, you can obsess endlessly over perfecting an idea, but in the end, yeah, people aren't gonna, people don't care about great ideas. They really only care about how you have executed it, like, you know, how it has become manifest.
0: Toby tried out lots of ideas, and he said it's this advertising gig that really helped him build his confidence.
1: As silly as that sounds, like having a job where people were paying me to come up with ideas and you know it's like yeah it, it feels good to have like a like an outward confirmation that your ideas are worth something right and then also my bosses were just like super german like known f- they're known for being hard asses in the in the advertising industry here okay. and uh, so they were great to learn from like if you didn't have an idea they you know they would just look at you with like a blank stare, but uh, if you but if you had something good, they would you know they would support you and sort of um, encourage. Yeah, they just encourage the whole creative thing. I think that helped me a lot, especially at the beginning.
0: Toby could pursue his passion for comedy without taking on a huge risk. He found a place where it was safe to try. So now I want to tell you about our first social entrepreneur. Zach Bazi. He's a U.S. veteran and co-founder of Tent Ed, an organization advancing the education of children displaced by war. Zach spent 10 years in the military with deployments to Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. After the military, he returned to Iraq as a consultant, spending most of his time in the Kurdistan region. Iraqi Kurdistan is in the northeastern part of the country. And if you pull out a map, it looks close to ISIS territory, but it's been a safe haven for over two million refugees and internally displaced people. Internally displaced people, or IDPs, are people that are from Iraq that had to leave their homes. So while working there, Zach started volunteering at refugee camps. It wasn't anything formal, he just got to know people and played games with kids outside. And Zach started sharing some of these stories and pictures with his friends back home.
2: And so when I got back after I wrapped up my, my gig here, uh, Scott Quilty, one of my dearest friends and also co-founder of Ben Ed, who also served here in Iraq and lost an arm or leg here, encouraged me to kind of take this to the next level. So that's what we did, him and I, and then I looped in a third dear friend, Pat Who, who him and I served together in Afghanistan. So between the three of us, all combat veterans, all haven't served here in Iraq, we put our heads together and uh, decided to found 10Ed.
0: So based on Zach's experiences as a volunteer in Iraq, their idea was to make education more accessible to kids there.
2: But, you know, we've all, you know, we're kind of in our 30s. We've been professionals for a while. We didn't want to just start something for the sake of starting something. Uh, we wanted to see if we could make a meaningful difference. So, you know, we looked around the, the landscape here and realize that there are enough big organizations when you study this situation.
0: Organizations like the UN, UNICEF, Save the Children.
2: And these are high-capacity organizations. They can, they can do the heavy lifting. They are necessary. They do a worthy work. But, you know, when you have problems of this nature that are extraordinarily complex, you will all inevitably have gaps, gaps in funding, gaps in resources, gaps in capacities.
0: These huge organizations will have budgets to do the big projects, like building the schools. But sometimes things are missed in the planning process, or because of bureaucracy, funds can't be reallocated. So there isn't enough money to fix the broken plumbing, or buy an air conditioner, or extra school supplies for kids that weren't expected to be there.
2: Uh, what was needed is something small, nimble, something responsive enough to fill gaps in the programmings and initiatives of other organizations.
0: So the startup team sketched out a rough model. They would raise some money from their friends and family, and while Zach is over in Iraq for his full-time job, he can apply it to specific projects that are going on there. But before all of this can happen, they realized that they needed a legal structure. In this case, a nonprofit. In the US, a 501c3 requires articles of incorporation, tax exemption, bylaws, and a board of directors not to mention a lawyer to help with this process and a website to collect donations and share what the organization is all about. So suddenly this idea got a lot more complicated. This is where it can feel too overwhelming to get started, or you might feel the pressure to get the idea right, right away, so there's no room for failure. One option is to give up. You'd avoid the failure, but of course that also means that any chance of helping people is gone too. And for Zach, this wasn't an option.
2: We are helping improve uh, the lives of these kids, I'd like to think, in a meaningful way. Uh, that is certainly uh, an inspiration to continue doing that work.
0: And Zach considers this work so important for another reason, one he describes as more selfish. Because what happens abroad affects us.
2: And so it's not just about empathy. It's also just about looking out for ourselves and, I I honestly believe like supporting education relief is a very selfish act because by preventing a generation of Syrian and Iraqi children from growing up unable to read, write, get the dignity of a job, you know, we're helping at least improve the prospects of stability for this region. It's better we just solve this on the front end instead of you know it developing potentially developing into just a large scale crisis or security failure like a generation later. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that somebody who's uneducated is going to automatically grow up to be an extremist. That's not the case. However, at the same time, I just can't think of anything good coming out of an entire generation of children growing up unable to read and write.
0: This idea for tent-ed was too important to give up on. But there still was risk that it might not work. So, Zach, Scott, and Patrick thought of ways to remove some of the risk and make it safe to try. What if a more established organization could offer some protection? Zach was friends with the director of Epic, a nonprofit in Iraq. They had the infrastructure set up already all the legal stuff, a way to accept donations, and a website. So, that's how TentEd started under the wing of an established nonprofit. Over the next couple of years, they implemented 15 small-scale projects. They worked with community-based organizations in the region and made real changes, like installing air conditioning in schools so kids could learn despite the heat, and helping dozens of kids to attend art and music therapy classes or go on field trips. Another project was to help bus kids to school. A common misconception is that refugees and displaced people live in rows of tents all in close proximity to each other. Many people live in their friends' houses or in abandoned homes or makeshift shelters, some in cities and some in remote villages. This can make it challenging to provide education for kids. So Tenta had helped to arrange transportation.
2: I remember talking to a mother of three daughters who were going to the school that we're supporting. Because of this transportation, the kids can go to school, and she was mentioning how just the fact that they can get up in the morning, and get ready, put on proper clothes, go to school and socialize with their, their fellow students and then come back. That rhythm in of itself is healthy. It helps them mature. It helps them socialize. And it gives everyone in that household, like, sort of uh, gives them a sense of meaning and purpose. And that was good for them psychologically. And as a result, good for her because she was feeling quite guilty when they weren't going to school. They would just sit around the house not doing much. So that was uh, certainly a conversation that drove home the point with respect to how important our work is.
0: Throughout these couple of years, they proved their concept.
2: And so it worked. I mean, that, I, to be honest with you, I, I didn't know, I wasn't 100% confident it was going to work from the onset. It, you know, I was happily surprised that it kind of continued to work.
0: So in 2016, Tent Ed became an independent nonprofit This allows them to focus on a single mission of advancing the education of children displaced by war. They also have an ability to expand outside of Iraq in the future, and they're looking at places like Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. TentEd is volunteer-run, and they raise about $50,000 a year, which might not seem like a lot, but small focus projects applied at the right time and in the right place can make a huge impact. With the help of TentEd, hundreds of displaced kids are back in school. And in the midst of chaos and uncertainty, these kids can learn, progress, and even have some fun. This idea has also engaged a diverse community of supporters.
2: You know, unfortunately, some people don't have the best view of, and I think oftentimes an unfair one, of our military. Yet, many friends of mine who are currently serving are veterans give. Same thing with friends of mine who happen to be Jewish or gay. They're given, and I, I find that uh, ironic, because the Middle East is a region in the world that, wrongly so, is not welcoming to people who happen to be Jewish or gay. And yet, you know, some of my biggest donors happen to be either veterans, gay, or Jewish. And I, I take pride in that.
0: So this small nonprofit has created global connections. What's happening in another country can seem so far away, but it isn't.
2: The price of tea in China, yeah, really has an effect on the price of beer in Wisconsin. So I think people need to have kind of a wider aperture when they look at the world or sort of a broader view of things. You can't just sort of go through life in your local area unaware of what's going on, unaware of the broader events going around you because they will inevitably affect you.
0: Knowing that we're all connected is another reason why a good idea is worth trying. Let's get back to comedy. A good stand-up comic makes their routines look effortless, like they're naturally funny. In reality, each joke has been tested and refined through multiple iterations. Our favorite comedians have built their entire tours and Netflix specials one joke at a time. Toby, our go-to comedian, writes his ideas for jokes down in notebooks. Then he chooses some jokes for open mic night to figure out what's funny and what's not. And sometimes he'll bring his notebook with him.
1: I've done sets where I just go, okay, I'm gonna try a bunch of new jokes and uh, then I read them off pieces of paper and then I can just like, even if a joke doesn't work, I'll just like tear it up and throw it away, and then that gets <laughs> a laugh sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, there's almost a, a technique to trying out new jokes where that can also become like a fun thing.
0: The reaction of the audience provides instant feedback. And as time goes on, it gets easier to try new things because Toby can build upon what already works.
1: You know, you workshop these jokes, so at some point you have like your your savers, let's say, your, your jokes that almost work no matter what, and that uh, relaxes you a bit when you think of a new joke, because, you know, you can always, you know, you can just follow it up with, a, with an old joke of yours that works better. So I think the longer you do it for, the less nervous you become about starting trying out something new because you have all this uh, stuff to fall back on.
0: So some jokes work and some don't. But it's this process of trying that helps Toby to get better.
1: Doing a thing is actually way more valuable than obsessing over h- how to make it perfect. Yeah. Yeah, so that helps, helps on every level. I love how uh, I was not expecting there to be such a red line throughout this interview, but I'm happy there seems to be one.
0: What do you mean? Just,
1: just this just... idea. I keep coming back to this difference between ideas and the execution yes. of the idea. And it can be quite liberating to realize you don't need a perfect idea to start working on it. You can just sort of, you know, know you're going to make mistakes along the way, know you can fix stuff along the way. Yeah.
0: We'll step away from comedy, but stay in Berlin, where Anne Kerr Reichart founded the Ready School of Digital Integration. It's a coding school for refugees. Since 2015, over one million refugees have come into Germany. While some people have welcomed them, others are afraid.
3: A lot of people are afraid of terrorism, but they don't realize that the people who are coming here are exactly fleeing from ISIS and from other terrorist organizations in, in other countries like Af- Afghanistan. So it's, it's a challenging thing, but, but really I think it's, it's mostly about people meeting and, and educating the people so they know that there's nothing to be afraid of and we share the same fears meeting
0: people. It's these human connections that mean so much to Anne, because without them, she wouldn't be here.
3: I think there's always many beginnings to a story and then it's always hard to describe exactly where ready school started. But on a personal note, I think the journey actually started even way before I was born, because my great-grandfather was a German refugee to Denmark. My family um, was running a printing business in the 1920s and 30s, printing um, socialist and pacifist books and newspapers, which the Nazis didn't really like. So they were severely harassed and decided to leave Germany in 33. And throughout my childhood, I, I kept hearing the story about my family and how essentially the reason why I can be alive today is because they were well received in Denmark by generous people who decided to protect my family and give them a a chance to to build a future in Denmark. So I think the, the consciousness about working with refugees has always been with me and my family.
0: Among a long list of accomplishments of doing great things, Anne founded the Peace Innovation Lab in Berlin. And as more and more refugees were fleeing to Germany, this group wanted to do something. So Anne visited a home for refugees to learn more.
3: When I went out there, the the one thing that really stayed with me was that I was shown their donation room, and it was an old swimming pool, and it was absolutely full of clothes and books and blankets, but it was just one big chaos. To me, it was really a symbol of already then what the challenges are, that on the one hand side you have people who are really in need of help, and on the other hand side, you have people who really want to help, but in between there is a lack of communication. There is a lot of lack of structure, so so that's why we started a project with the, um peace innovation lab to really see how can we how can we make a better match between what people can give and what people really need.
0: And then she met Mohammed,
3: and uh, he was telling me his story of how he had been in Berlin um, for two years at that point, and how he had three years of training as a software engineer in Baghdad. But since he arrived in Germany, um, he wasn't able to continue programming simply because he didn't have a laptop. And this was really when the penny dropped for me because I know how many people are looking for talent interested in IT in the startup scene and in tech companies. And and this is when I asked myself, question, what if we were to build a coding school teaching newcomers in Berlin to program and help them get a job in the tech industry in Germany? So Anne took this idea to Facebook. I wrote a simple post coming up with the, the suggestion very briefly saying, what if we were to build a tech school? Will you be in to help? And all of a sudden, we had people saying, I've got a classroom, I've got an old laptop, I can be... cool. And this was really sort of the first proof of concept for me, just to see, okay, if we were to do this, you know, could we make it happen?
0: Already, the idea of a coding school for refugees was gaining traction. The Guardian newspaper picked it up, and it was spreading on social media. With some donated laptops, volunteer teachers from the tech community, and interested students, they started a pilot program
3: one of many it's it's doing pilot projects all the time or what other people i like the term space monkey so it's like (laughs) this little creature that you send out into the great unknown to test what the conditions are like then you bring it back to earth and you evaluate how did it actually go and and ready school has really been working with a lot of these space monkeys to give an example of what we learned when we did the the two-week pilot project we were working on laptops that were donated by private people. So it meant that all the 12 students had 12 different laptops. And you can imagine how difficult it was to run one course teaching the same thing when one person was on a MacBook Pro and another one was you know, from Lidl and one was maybe two years old and the other one was five years old so the speaks were running differently some had an american keyboard some had a german keyboard so you know (laughs) from, from from the good intention of oh everyone needs a laptop we also realized that we needed a standardized setup so this is just an example of it it's really taking step by step but not trying to overthink it all the time let's rather build small pilots small projects could we run it in an hour? What if we could run it, the project in a day? What if we could run it in a week? And then eventually when we felt ready and having all the right knowledge, then see, okay, how can we run it as a three-month project that we want to build? From each
0: iteration, they were able to build a stronger case, but they faced an even bigger challenge. For the ready school to impact many people, it had to be sustainable. They needed a model that generated enough money to support a full-time
3: staff. Because around us we could see other volunteer projects um, simply burning out because they didn't have this focus on sustainability in their mind. They started from all the goodness of their heart, but you can only work for say 16 hours a day for a certain period of time before you're gonna run out of energy. And, And you need to to take it serious, that that when you are providing concepts that is going to bring and projects that are going to bring hope to refugees, it's you can't just pull pull the plug because you're going to leave a stream of very disappointed people behind you. So I think it's a matter of of being responsible in the way that we approach social change and saying this needs to be something that we can keep delivering over time. Um, some projects, it's okay that they are only running. For a short period of time, but the ambition of what Ready School is trying to do is to really help people find jobs or start their own businesses or get back into university. And, and therefore, you need a, a committed staff to make sure that, that you are able to deliver.
0: A sustainable business model, something that every entrepreneur strives for, but it's really hard to achieve. Anne recognized that for profit companies in the area were demanding a strong tech workforce and also looking for ways to be good corporate citizens. The ready school could offer a solution, but partnering with major corporations as a budding startup seemed like a huge and nearly impossible task.
3: So they started with small steps. What I think it's, it's important early on is, is to really build prototypes or pilots where you can show that there is traction, that you are able to build a community that you're able to, in our case, to attract the right teachers, the right students. And to demonstrate that this works in two weeks, imagine it as a three-month project. Because if you have that kind of proof of concept, it becomes a lot easier to then go out to potential partners. The Ready School found its first partner,
0: a German steel company, Gluckner & Co. And for Anne, this partnership proved that this model could work. Since launching in February of 2016, the Ready School has graduated over a hundred students who either got jobs in the tech industry, went to university to earn a tech-related degree, or started up their own businesses. There's Amadoula, who left his home in Afghanistan to flee the Taliban.
3: He joined Ready School with a dream to someday work for Cisco. Then Amadoula also started teaching in our kids' course. And I absolutely love the idea that we can turn our past students into trainers in the future. Cisco was so impressed that the first person that they offered a, a, a paid internship was actually to to Amadoula. And I was just so incredibly excited when he did his first Facebook post from the Cisco office where he was taking a photo of being so excited about the new view from his office all over Berlin. Ah, oh,
0: that is so cool.
3: Wow. So it's and there's so many stories like that. Rami is another student from Syria who just got offered a, a paid contract with Glukna and Co, which is another of our partners. And and he started, you know, when when he came here, um, he was kind of a, a shy guy, sitting a bit in a corner with a big jacket and a hat, even though it was warm inside, but <laughs> protecting himself and. Now he's just the most outgoing guy who's like in a, you know, in a sweatshirt with a hoodie and he just looked like, you know, he was born into the startup world in Willem. And the transformation that I've seen in the students who have been with us for less than half a year, coming in a little bit shy, not knowing what they were getting into and now turning into these incredible young people who are going out working for tech companies and inspiring other refugees to to start with Ready School is just incredible.
0: The model that was created from a bunch of trial and error has attracted a lot of support. In April of 2017, Chancellor Angela Merkel came to the Ready School because she was impressed by their mission and model. And Sheryl Sandberg and Mark and Priscilla Zuckerberg visited and donated on behalf of Facebook, where that initial post was a small step and a small idea that was definitely worth trying. I know that some of you listening right now are letting fears get the best of you. Your idea could fail. It might cost a lot of time or money, and it might result in something mediocre. But as we've learned today, great ideas start small, scrappy, incomplete, and uncertain. Find a place where it's safe to take that small step and try to give that idea a chance to make a big impact. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to learn more about Toby, Zach, or Anne, go to changemakerpodcast.com. Music is by Jazar, Josh Woodward, Broke for Free, Revolution Void, Chris Zabriskie, Josh Harlan, and Jason Shaw. I'm Jackie Biederman, and you've been listening to Changemaker.